First John, chapter one, verse one to chapter two, verse two. Read along with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaimed also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let us pray before uh, I share the, the sermon today. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, that uh, you lead us into another day of worship. I pray that your light will shine so bright in our hearts that, uh, that just as Moses' face glowed because of your glory, that we ourselves would light and bright shine uh, amongst our neighbors. God, will you illuminate your word to us uh, and grant us your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 2008, uh, there's a a guy named Richard Eckersley. He's an independent Australian researcher, and he wrote an article about the state of Western morality. <clears throat> the premise is that the Western culture has failed to provide a convincing ethical framework. So that today's youth lack a social and a spiritual context to base their identity around. As such, they end up forging their own way, constructing their own path of morality, and the author says the goal is for human beings to live better and address the fundamental issue of how to live. Well, let me tell you, the matter isn't just that we need to live better because we all know that and we all strive for that. But the matter is, where do we place our trust? And today, today's passage is talking about the reality of sin in the world and how it separated mankind from God, our creator, but many of you already know this. You also know that we require the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sin. So what is distinct about this passage? The verse that, that stands out is in chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God is the propitiation, that he is the appeasement of God's wrath but not for ours only, but for the whole world. John is proclaiming God as Savior in whom the whole world can place their trust. So my hope for us by the end of the, the sermon is that we'll be more encouraged by the Word, more empowered by the Holy Spirit, and more in love with Jesus Christ to be driven to share the gospel with others. So why can we trust God? John's goal in this letter is to reassure and to give confidence to the churches 
because at this time, the churches he's addressing are experiencing a lot of their uh, fellow congregants leaving because of false doctrine of sin and Christ's atonement. These guys who are leaving the church are claiming a new gospel, one that denounces Jesus as the Son of God and that they can live perfectly without sin, and therefore they have no need of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. So imagine if someone came into our church and started spreading a different gospel than the we've heard, and they were convincing others. It could possibly shake our faith also. That leads to questions like, am I sure about what I believe? Or better yet, let's assume that you get into a conversation with someone at your office who questions your faith. Why do you pray to someone or something that you can't see? How do you know he's real? And so on. How do we respond? And our response is the same as the one in the first century. What was from the beginning concerning the word of life? That's how John begins his letter. In the gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's the same way that our Bible begins in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what does this tell us? It tells us that nothing has changed. It was God in the beginning, and the word of life was with God. We believe in a God eternal, in whom and through whom all things are made. John ensures that all believers can trust the scriptures and the gospels because there's no deviation of who God is and whom we worship. And so we can trust God because he is the inspiration for all the words in our scripture. It is only the word of life who has the power to give eternal life. And this word of life came and became known to them and to us as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is the same word that John has preached since the beginning. Another reason why we can trust God is because of John's eyewitness account. John continues by saying, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. After establishing the origin and the person of Jesus Christ, as God from who was from the beginning, he established his own authority and the gospel message that he preached to them. So what he spoke to them wasn't just secondhand stories. It wasn't uh, some fantasy or some ancient folklore. But he was an actual eyewitness. He heard Jesus speak to them. He heard Jesus teaching the Beatitudes. He was there when he fed the 5,000 with two fish and a loaf of bread. He felt the warmth of Jesus' hands when he washed their feet. He witnessed Jesus being betrayed and taken away at Gethsemane. And he followed Jesus as he was beaten and led away carrying the cross. But he also experienced the joy when Jesus appeared before them after his resurrection. So these are the things that he heard and he saw and he testifies to them and now to us. What he says is trustworthy because he was an eyewitness to God who came in the form of a flesh. The third reason why we can trust God is because he is the only one who is perfect. Sadly, there's no such thing as perfection in this world and brokenness exists in all parts of our world. But God is the most perfect and pure light in holiness and moral uprightness. And anyone outside of this light 
is in darkness. If the black hole is the complete absence of light, then God is the complete absence of darkness. Whereas the black hole sucks in and consumes all matter, including light, God is the undying source of light and life. And so the light of truth, there can be no lies. Actually, in the light of truth, all lies are brought to light and unhidden. There's nowhere, no place that a lie can hide. And only the light contains the truth, and only in this truth resides true fellowship with God and with one another. And the final reason why we can trust God is because God doesn't lie. The things John is proclaiming once established their relationship with him, and it still remains the reason for their continued relationship. Trust keeps their relationships. Trust keeps our relationships. Without trust, there's nothing to build our relationship on. And isn't that what we desire in all of our relationships? We want to trust our friends, our spouses, our children, our parents, government, schools, businesses, and churches. But many of these things fail us. And unfortunately, that's the nature of human beings. And we can look at Genesis in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were so easily deceived by the serpent and how easily they lied and diverted their responsibility away from themselves to one another, even blaming God. And so going back to the article, uh, the thesis of the article is that there is an absence of a shared ideal or vision in our society and its future, a vision that nurtures and nourishes the individual and helps to hold a society together. What he's saying is that, there, that our Western cultural narrative has failed because there's nothing that unifies the vision or ideal for the world. In the past, there were uh, human enemies that unified a, a nation or a group of people together. But today, the common enemy is not just one human being or individual. It's an entire infrastructure. Things that we usually trust in, like the government, corporations, banks, and churches. But many times they fail us. And even Christians have failed to express the love of Christ. And so our generation and the next generation don't have faith or trust in the future. The lack of trust in the Western culture is due to a lack of central ethical framework, values, and beliefs. That's what the author says. Not only does a lack of trust remove the ethical framework, but it also builds skepticism in the past established values. That Western values used to be things like faith, hope, charity, and integrity, which are considered virtues, but because of broken trust and skepticism, there's no longer any objective moral authority, and the Western culture has turned to turned vices into today's virtues. These things are pride, greediness, lust, envy, anger, gluttony, and sloth. Uh, there was a moment at school uh, in one of my classes called spiritual formation, and I had one of my profoundest moments. One of the professors was going through the seven deadly sins, and he was explaining 
sloth in a way that I'd never heard of before. And we usually associate sloth with extreme laziness. But he said that sloth, beyond the physical lethargy, is a sense of not caring, even about not caring. And so cynicism and skepticism induces sloth. And it made me think about myself, and it made me think about Jesus. In the past, I used to consider myself uh, a cynical guy, but not in that negative term, more as a realist. I consider myself a realist. And this, I would, you know, my thought is, this is just the way the world is. Everybody lies, and the world is going down the toilet. Then I thought about Jesus. You know, did Jesus think the world was going down the toilet too? You know, that can't be right. Why else would he come? But Jesus was also a realist. He wasn't some idealist uh, that did not see the faults of the world, nor was he a cynic. And it's because Jesus saw the sins of every human being, but he possessed the most ultimate hope for the world, and that's himself. Human beings turned what was considered an offense into something that's desirable, what was sin into something that is not sin. And one commentator puts it, this is the heart of human rebellion, that we would reject the ways of God in favor for our wants and our ways. And while skepticism leads to inaction, Jesus is the remedy. Because Jesus knew the whole world was going to destruction. And he could have thought, that's just the way the humans are. And this is what they deserve. Instead, God looked at us, and because he knew that we were all doomed for destruction, out of his immense love for us, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to say, stop, don't ruin yourselves. Come, follow me, and live. When we can't trust one another, we build up a wall of skepticism. But when we trust in God, when we follow God, we have life. And so the article says there's, there's a failure of culture. And his plea is that we need to live better lives. But who doesn't know that? We all know that both Christians and non-Christians desire to do that. But the problem is that the author is saying that these infrastructures need to come up with something tangible and lasting as our moral framework. But as we find out that it doesn't usually stand up. And so it leaves people fending for themselves. These flaws mean young people who are establishing their identities, values, and beliefs lack a social and spiritual context. They lack a set of clear reference points to help them make sense of life and their place in the world. Now, it's interesting, not only are young people lacking a unified social context to derive their identities, but they also lack a spiritual context. They have no religion, or nowadays, too many religions, and everything gets muddled. They pick and choose what they want and what they think is useful, all the while thinking and believing that they're good. But John tells us that we're not good, but actually that we are full of sin. And to say that we have no sin is to deceive ourselves. It rem reminds me of a, a video that I watched about Ravi Zacharias, and he's, 
uh, talking about subjective and objective morality. And a student from the audience comes to the mic and asks, why are you so afraid of subjective morality or moral reasoning? Do you think that we're all going to start raping and pillaging because, just because we don't have a book to tell us that? I'm not afraid, because that won't happen. Nazis were bad, but there were Christian and atheist Nazis. So why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? And Ravi's uh, response is the most perfect and wise response you could hear. He stands from his stool chair and he adjusts his belt and he has a slight smirk on his eye and he asks a semi-rhetorical question. Do you lock your door at night? And the response, and he could have just sat down because the response is that if you're so confident that people will not go about pillaging and murdering, why would you lock your doors at night? With subjective mor uh, moral reasoning, no one has any right to say what is actually right or wrong. And so Ravi points out, if you get into an argument with somebody, your reasoning could lead you to an action of talking it out. But the other person's reasoning could lead to violence. And no one else has any right to say what is actually right or wrong. But in God, we can trust because in him is a truth that we desire. Only his character is perfect and spotless. And when we trust in God, we can trust him to make us spotless as well. We need a perfect God for perfect guidelines. Not in the sense of complete sinlessness, not on this earth, but to not live in darkness. Instead, to live in the light. So what does that look like? To practice the truth is to say that we have fellowship with God and walk in the light. And John's clear about what walking in the light is, to have fellowship with God and with one another in love. And to acknowledge that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. And later on, John equates hating one's brother to being in the darkness. So the positive is to love one another to be in the light. And so we practice the truth in church community. When we are in fellowship with one another, we can rub one another the wrong way. But as we reflect on the faithfulness and the love of God to forgive our sins, we can also love others by seeking and extending forgiveness. But not only within the church, but our new selves extend beyond into our secular environments. How, will, how do we respond uh, in a secular environment when our coworkers might speak bad about us or when we are passed over for a recognition of our our work? Do we respond by spreading our own gossip? Do we shrink away and hide? Do we look for another job? Or do we confront in a loving way? When we display Christ's love, we disarm hostility and we gain the trust of others. And it can open opportunities for us to share God's love. The scripture tells us today that God is trustworthy, and that's his nature. 
Not sometimes, and not only when we do good things, but all the time. And the word faithful means that he keeps his promises. And there's an abundance of God's faithfulness to forgive our sins. And that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 32. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But God's faithfulness, for us to access that, it requires our confession. It's not hiding like Adam and Eve did, but coming before him, making known our sins openly to God out of humility, knowing that he will not resist to forgive us. It doesn't mean that our our confession triggers God's forgiveness, but it's that we access it. As one commentator puts it, it is God's divine character that he is faithful and just, So as a result, he is in a position to forgive all those who seek his face. But why is it just? Why is it righteous that he would forgive our sins? Because if anything, God's justice, our sin under God's justice would sentence all of us to death. But instead, he would forgive. But that's why Jesus' sacrifice is all the more beautiful. Because as we read in John, in 1 John 2 and 2, because of Jesus' complete obedience to the Father, he satisfies the blood sacrifice of all human beings and relieves us of the wrath of God. And so in God's justice, his wrath is appeased. But in his mercy, he would rather look at the work of Christ than our own sins. So we see God's justice and mercy working together simultaneously because of his love. Instead of receiving our due justice and wrath of God, we receive instead unmerited grace and forgiveness of our sins. So how beautiful is Jesus Christ on the cross? When we confess, we're reminded of God's holiness and how we were once separated from him. But now, because of the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are reunited with him. He also reminds us of his generosity to forgive sinners, which leads us to a heart of gratitude and thankfulness instead of wallowing in self-pity or forgetting that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. So what we desire is something or someone to trust in. But for the most part, we look for it in the wrong places. And we need to learn to trust God in all of our areas of our lives, in our finances, our love life, marriage, raising a child, dealing with neighbors, coworkers, dealing with work, how to have rest. Because when we place our trust in human infrastructures, they fail us more than we like them to. And when that happens, our world also crumbles with it. But when we trust God, because he is the author of truth and the only source of eternal life, trusting him 
transforms our lives from a life of darkness into light and perfect righteousness. And Christ came because he loved the sinners. He considers himself the mother hen who gathers up her chick under his wings. He considers himself the shepherd to find the lost sheep. And he came down to talk with people. He healed them and he cried with them, suffered and died for them. But not for them only, but for us and for the whole world. So isn't that something worth sharing with our coworkers, our children, and our neighbors about? How can we love our neighbors if we don't know them? Paul encourages us in Romans, how then will they call on him who, have, who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So as you all know, I work part-time at a rock climbing gym and it helps me brush up on my testimony and uh, me, encourages me to study the Bible more so that I can share the gospel better. There was an opportunity that I had to talk with one of the staff members, and he was talking about how the only thing that mattered to him was that he was a good person. And I forget what I asked exactly, but it might have been, how do you know what is good? And he said that he went through a season of looking at different religions and choosing what he thought was something that he could use. But I shared with him that for me, there's only one thing that is good, and that's God, and that's Jesus Christ alone. And for him, he grew up Catholic, and so the image of the church is tainted. But he knew, and he knows that the person of Jesus was good, but hopefully through my interactions with him, the Spirit will change his mind about the church and his attitude toward God. And if there's anyone else here who also go through uh, trusting God and trusting the word that we read, I would love to talk with you and to pray with you and, and to reassure one another that God is trustworthy. So let's continue to live in the light by loving God and loving one another in life of repentance, and sharing the gospel. Let us pray.